0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our program is White Lies to Brown Women The Disingenuous Feminism of the Right. Sarah Ferris is my guest today. She's the author of In the Name of Women's Rights The Rise of Femo Nationalism. Our opening song is Laji by Aziza Brahim and she provides all the music for the program today. Laji is Arabic and means refugee. The song's opening line is Ever since I arrived in this world I have lived as a refugee. Aziz Ibrahim was born in 1976 in the Sawahari refugee camps in the Tindouf region of Algeria, where her mother had settled in late 1975 after fleeing from the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara. At the age of 11, she received a scholarship to study in Cuba, as many Sahrawi students at the time. She wanted to study music but was rejected as a result of the Cuban economic crisis of the 90s. She left school and returned to the refugee camps in 1995, pursuing her musical career. Since 2000, she's lived in Spain. In our show today with Sarah Ferris, we'll ask, what's behind the right-wing demand for women's rights in the context of immigration? Hint, it's the neoliberal economy, stupid. And why do racist nationalist parties mobilize behind the rhetoric of feminism when discussing the current other, the right loves to hate, the Muslim male? The answer just may be found in Marx's 1843 essay, On the Jewish Question, which reveals an ideological racism exemplified in the U.S. in Ann Coulter's statement that Muslim countries ought to be invaded, their leaders killed, and the people converted to Christianity. Sarah Ferris is Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Goldsmiths, University of London. Her work examines theories of racism and nationalism, She's the author of In the Name of Women's Rights, The Rise of FEMO Nationalism, and Max Weber's Theory of Personality, Individuation, Politics, and Orientalism in the Sociology of Religion. Sarah Ferris begins by telling us that it is important that there is a public legitimacy of women's rights, but that the policies of governments do not actually realize these rights. And further, that right-wing politics in the US, the Netherlands, France, and Italy make use of feminist rhetoric in order to demonize Muslim society as uniquely oppressive to women.
1: I think it's also important to notice that we live actually in an historical time, at least in the Western, so-called Western world, in which uh, the issue of women's rights and the, and feminist issues more generally actually are quite uh, recognized as socially important. So even lots of women who don't necessarily uh, you you would not even consider as feminists because they don't represent the in, in a way, the prototype of the feminist uh, actually are calling themselves feminists. And here I'm thinking of even someone like Theresa May or Sheryl Sandberg uh, in the United mm-hmm. States uh, or even Ivanka Trump. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we are certainly living in a, in a, in a historical uh, time in which feminism is cool, uh, in which, you know, people recognize it is important that women have um, not not people but let's say there is a certain public legitimacy mm. around the discourse that women's rights are extremely important mm. for our societies now on the one hand we have that we have this we have this public recognized legitimacy of women's rights on the other hand if we look at uh, policies that are put in place, particularly by conservative governments or right-wing governments, and here I'm thinking also of Trump, Mm -hmm. something else going on, which is again an attempt to attack women's rights, for instance, to attack abortion rights. So um, these two processes are, you know, we need actually to watch them and just to remember that the public recognition of feminism as a good thing is not necessarily matched by more rights for women or more gender equality in, in society. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, this is perhaps also an introduction to say a little bit about my book, uh, in which I also try to analyze some of these uh, Contradiction, some of these tensions between uh, policies and actual policies on the one hand and public discourses on the other hand. So my book really, what it does, it looks into these new convergence. I, co- I prefer to call it convergence rather than alliance or mm-hmm. um, among right-wing nationalist parties on the one hand and on the other hand, some feminists. And in all of this, I also try to put emphasis on the role of neoliberalism and why all of this is happening under neoliberalism and how also some neoliberal policies and neoliberal policymakers are implicated into all of this. Mm -hmm. So what I I try to do really is to look on the one hand at the fact that right-wing nationalist parties are increasingly exploiting feminist ideas of gender equality against Muslims and immigrants so they go on with the trop according to which Muslims oppress women and uh, um, immigrant, male immigrants, uh, they are misogynists and potential rapists and so forth. So on the one hand, we have uh, these right-wing nationalists uh, um, using all, all, all of these slogans. On the other hand, we have also some feminists, and I really want to stress some Uh, Some feminists uh, who also are endorsing particularly anti-Islam politics and anti-Islam slogans um, under the idea that Islam oppresses women, that uh, uh, Muslim women who wear the veil uh, don't really do it uh, by choice they do it because they are forced to do it or because somehow they have internalized a mentality of oppression according to which they should be doing that and so forth. So we have this strange convergence in which anti-Islam politics in the name of women's rights somehow has become a kind of hegemonic right. discourse. Or in the book, I actually call it um, an ideological formation mm-hmm. because I think it is important to analyze this formation this discourse uh, with materialist lenses so to see what's behind that what are the p- possible material and economic uh, interests or implications of this discourse mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Sarah Ferris, senior lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths, University of London. Her new book is In the Name of Women's Rights The Rise of Femo Nationalism. But what exactly is Femo Nationalism?
1: So, Femo Nationalism is really uh, short for Femocratic uh, and Feminist Nationalism. So, it describes on the one hand, uh, The exploitation of feminist themes by right-wing nationalists and on the other hand the endorsement of uh, anti-Islam politics in the name of women's rights by feminists but also so-called femocrats or femocrats I don't know (laughs) femocrats basically are Um, female bureaucrats in gender equality state agencies, which is a phenomenon that's been uh, analyzed quite widely in the last 20 years uh, by, for instance, Hester Eisenstein in uh, in the United States. She was referring specifically to the Australian case and it is the the, the phenomenon of so-called femocrats uh, is also the phenomenon of so-called state feminism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the question is, how has gender mainstreaming or how has the entrance of uh, women into gender equality state agencies changed the feminism or what did it do to certain feminist demands mm-hmm. so this is nationalism
0: mm-hmm. not too long ago I watched a documentary I think it was on you know, second wave Feminism and, and it focused, uh, I think, primarily in, in, in London. One of the points was that a lot of these um, uh, more radical groups were basically co-opted by the state, you know, created bureaucratic roles for uh, feminist uh, equality within the state, you know, how to promote uh, creating agencies that will support women, um, and but not change, obviously, the state or or the state agencies or the economic structures, uh, but almost just became another welfare arm of the state in some measure.
1: Well, you you know, it's a very complicated phenomenon because on the one hand, obviously, the entrance of women into the state apparatuses, particularly in the 1970s, in the 1980s, was also a positive development in the sense that uh, these women also fought very hard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for women's rights—the right to divorce, the right to abortion, uh, the right of, uh, uh, you know, to have equal representation of women in the public sphere. Uh, they voted against the, the, the pay gap and so forth. So certainly, there have been also positive developments. Uh, I mean, they have been also positive phenomenon. On the other hand, of course, there is also the the issue is also to what extent, uh, uh, you know, the state apparatuses themselves uh, have somehow uh, also co-opted or changed feminist practices within the state. Mm. What kind of compromises women have had uh, Uh, in a way to do in order to stay within uh, these state apparatuses. And uh, this certainly is an open question. And and I don't think uh, it is particularly useful to actually approach it in a very general way. Mm -hmm. I think we need to look at it case by case, Mm -hmm. country by by country, and sometimes also, you know, depending upon the historical period and also the government in power. so that's just to say I think we need to we should be quite specific what I can tell you though in relation to my book in in this sense what I noticed and I should say my book really focuses on three European countries Mm -hmm. which is Netherlands France and Italy what certainly I noticed in these countries is that the discourse of gender equality in these countries has been in the last 15 years particularly um, has um, in a way shifted more and more towards uh, the issue of gender inequality amongst uh, Muslim and immigrant communities.
0: It's time for a break. Here's another song from Aziz Ibrahim to accompany you. This is Invasores, or Invaders, off of the 2012 album Mabruk which translates from Arabic as congratulations, a rejoicing in another's good fortune. More with Sarah Ferris on how white people claim to want to save brown women from brown men when Interchange returns on WFHB. Back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is White Lies to Brown Women, and my guest is Sarah Ferris, author of In the Name of Women's Rights, The Rise of FEMO Nationalism, published by Duke University Press. In this segment, Ferris details the usefulness of demonizing the Muslim male in order to channel funding away from gender equality in general, while, quote unquote, protecting non-Western immigrant women as unique victims of gender oppression. Did I say unique? The United Nations has labeled domestic violence the most pervasive form of violence in Italy. In the first nine months of 2016, 116 women were victims of
2: femicide.
1: That in, in these countries, uh, the idea according to which uh, Islam is a problem for women or non Western immigrants oppress women so this whole discourse has become so widespread and hegemonic that, uh, um, in some ways, even Femocrats, uh, 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 state feminists, have bought into it, and very often those who have done it are actually right wing feminists or Femocrats, but also has become so widespread. Uh, Uh, even at the expenses of gender equality issues more generally. And this is quite clear in the Netherlands, uh, in which uh, a a context in which, uh, uh, you know, public funds uh, have been increasingly withdrawn from gender equality programs. uh, And they have been put increasingly into programs addressing gender inequality only amongst uh, um, immigrants and ethnic ethnic minority communities. So in other words, the idea somehow... uh, Uh, has become, oh, Western women, European women, are emancipated, Uh, they have achieved fundamentally all the, the goals that they had set for themselves in the 1980s and so forth. Now, we don't really need to invest much public funds into that because the real problem now is the immigrants and the Muslim women. So, they are the ones who are really confronting gender inequality because they come from backward cultures. Now. What I try to address in my book is precisely the fact that these assumptions uh, are fundamentally detrimental for gender justice, uh, uh, even in very material terms, because one of the consequences of this hegemonic discourse has been precisely to think that gender inequality is, is a problem only amongst Muslims, right. and it's not a problem anymore in Western societies. And this has translated into less funds for gender equality issues in Western societies. And this is extremely problematic, first of all, because it's completely untrue. We have lots of problems in Western societies uh, when it comes to gender inequality. Um, Just uh, in Italy, for instance, uh, there is a huge problem called the femicide. It's been called femicide because in the last few years there have been an incredible number of cases of Italian men brothers, uh, brothers uh, um, uh, very often boyfriends, husbands, and so forth, uh, even, you know, killing women mm. who somehow had uh, uh, resisted or rejected them in some form. And this is, you know, this go- goes somehow under, uh, it, it's not talked much or, or not as much uh, or not in the same terms as when something happens in the Muslim community or in an immigrant community. So if there is a case in which... Uh, uh, you know a, a man of uh, you know of moroccan origin uh, does something to a woman then it becomes a national case and all of islam is under attack when the same thing happens uh Something involving an Italian man or a Dutch man and so forth, there is no mention of his uh, Christian or Italian culture and so forth. Mm-hmm. So certainly one of the things that I really want to stress is that this idea that gender inequality is a problem especially amongst Muslims or non-Western immigrants is a profoundly racist idea. Right. It's not to be found, uh, there are no statistics that say that. There is no more um, you know, domestic violence uh, or oppression of women in these Muslim and non-immigrant communities than there is uh, in other communities. Obviously, this is not to say that there is no oppression towards women within Muslim communities or non-Western communities. It's just to say, comparatively, uh, we can't say that there is more. So we need to acknowledge uh, these problems.
0: This is Doug Storm. You're listening to my conversation with Sarah Ferris via Skype from London. Ferris is the author of In the Name of Women's Rights. We're talking about the demonizing of the Muslim other as a sexual aggressor as a facet of FEMO nationalism or FEMocratic nationalism. Countries that are predominantly run by a particular class or, or uh, race of, of people, so the, as you say, a, a, a culture that has its own gender issues, has its own um, history of, you know, oppressing women, uh, sees in the mirror the culture that they are used to, or the culture they accept, the culture they expect as the right culture, regardless of its own. Uh, errors. They're they're always going to see themselves in the mirror as the good person or the right way to be, and it's much easier, as we all know, to demonize an other that is a visible other. Obviously, in the U.S., immigration and minority groups can constantly uh, serve this role. Uh, they're they're always the other that is always failing. You know, they're always the other that is always uh, sexualized as an aggressor, always. Um, and so this, you know, again, this template is not a strange one. The Muslim other is, is an easy, easy target at this point. Uh, most important, I think, to me, and uh, what I think is new here, or what, what is new for me anyway, is trying to understand the economic rationale that you make uh, strong points about, you know, neo- the neoliberal rationale for having uh, sort of a welfare state that welcomes the victim, you know, welcomes the, the Muslim woman as a victim that we can put to work and integrate Right. That's the, the key issue is, you know, how to integrate a labor force in this victimhood. Right. That's that's one of the points you make. It's uh, I think you would you call it civic integration. Is that is that the, the general term? And it's a that's a that's an intentional that's the, a, the term other people would use for the the right way to do things. Right. So civic integration is looked on as a good thing, but you're you're calling it, you know, a very contentious act of 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 racist uh, assimilation, I suppose.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I would say that I, I agree. One of the things that I try to do in this book is precisely to provide a political economic reading of all of this. So the question for me from the beginning really was, how is that Muslim men or non-Western immigrant men are always portrayed as you know potential rapists, criminals, or job stealers? And how is that instead Muslim or non-Western immigrant women instead are, are usually portrayed as victims uh, to be rescued? So where does this gender double standard come from? And one of the things I I analyzed when I was writing this book was precisely, I, I looked at the different narratives, the way in which, uh, particularly in the, in, in the mainstream media, um, non-Western Immigrant women and Muslim women are portrayed vis-a-vis or in opposition to non-Western immigrant and Muslim men. And uh, particularly at the economic realm, this was quite interesting to see. And uh, one of the things that uh, one notices immediately is that, particularly after the economic crisis 2007-2011, is that uh, immigrants again became the scapegoat for the bad economic situation as it happens or as it has happened in the last 150 years, whenever there was an economic crisis.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Sarah Ferris, author of In the Name of Women's Rights, about the right-wing use of feminist rhetoric to demonize Muslim culture as uniquely oppressive to women.
1: On the other hand, uh, in this more recent uh, economic crisis in Europe, at least, uh, women, Muslim women and non-immigrant, sorry, non-Western immigrant women were not portrayed in this way. Actually, in Italy, for instance, there was an amnesty only in 2009. There was an amnesty only for women working as uh, um, uh, personal carers. In Italy, we call them badanti basically for women doing elderly care or caring for disabled people, which is a huge phenomenon in Italy. So I thought, wait a second, how is that uh, the Berlusconi government, because in 2009 it was still the Berlusconi government, and particularly the Northern League uh, inside the Berlusconi government, how is that they are calling for these uh, immigrant women to be rescued, to be made legal in a context of anti-immigration sentiments so how is that these immigrants can be rescued whereas the immigrant men working in manufacture or in construction the construction sector instead you know They are all to blame for the bad economic situation. And one of the things that I I try to say in this book is precisely because they perform different roles uh, within this neoliberal capitalist economy. Uh, Migrant men and migrant women, Muslim and non-Muslim alike, uh, they actually occupy different positions in the uh, economic sector. The migrant women, uh, they are predominantly employed in the so-called social reproductive sector, which means they are nannies, uh, Cleaners, uh, carers uh, for, for elderly people or for children, so they are doing all those jobs that are absolutely essential for you know the survival of our societies. But these are also those jobs uh, that actually have been privatized. Uh, and, and increasingly commodified under neoliberalism. And uh, there are also jobs for which there is a huge demand uh, if, if, if for two demographic and societal reasons. First, uh, there is an aging population. More and more elderly people and disabled people need someone to care for them or some form of... Uh, public or private structure in which they can be cared for, but also more and more women are entering the labour market and they intend to remain there. So, uh, you know, there are no, the women uh, or the European women, although, you know, this doesn't mean much, but let's say the non-immigrant women uh, increasingly are unwilling to do, to perform social productive roles for free. It's time for a
0: break. Here's another from Aziz Ibrahim. This is Manos Enemigas, Enemy Hands. More with Sarah Ferris on The Rise of Femo Nationalism when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back, I'm Doug Storm, we continue with Sarah Ferris on the question of the material use of immigrants in Western countries. Step one, demonize the immigrant brown male as a violent sexual aggressor. Step two, protect the victims of this aggression with work programs that are purportedly designed to liberate women from their mostly Muslim male oppressors. And in this segment, step three, civic integration, or enforcing the racist and colonial assumptions of assimilation.
1: programs in Europe um, increasingly have become the way in which migrants, according to governments, should be integrated. Basically, the idea is that they should demonstrate their willingness to become a good part of society by um, learning the language of the country of destination, by learning the values and the history of the country of destination, and all of this in order to show their willingness Precise, they want to, to be integrated. But when you look at what these civic integration programs do specifically, it's quite interesting the gender dimensions of them. So first of all, it is uh, um, all these programs emphasize the need for migrant men to learn respect for women. And obviously the assumption is that because they are non-Western immigrants, by definition, they are backward, they are misogynist, and they do not respect women. So we have the first quite racist assumption uh, in these programs. But the second interesting thing that I I looked at uh, is uh, what these programs do concretely when it comes to economic integration. And quite interestingly, uh, these programs actually are channeling uh, um, migrant women undergoing civil integration, they are channel- channeling them into the social reproductive sector. So they are basically telling them, okay, if you want to be integrated in, uh, in, in this country, then of course uh, the best thing to do is to try to find a job, learn the language and find a job because it's the best way to integrate. But when it comes to finding a job or helping them to find a job, they are not really asked uh, what is your experience, uh, what are your qualifications? What your, is your uh, degree, and so forth? They are actually uh, immediately channeled towards these social reproductive sectors, for which there is not, for which there is labor shortage. So they are basically asked to become nannies, uh, to become, as I said, uh, carers for elderly people, child minders, uh, and so forth. To the extent that in the Netherlands, uh, particularly. Mm, when the programs began in 2007, 2008, etc., with these women undergoing civil integration programs, they were even asked to volunteer, to become volunteers in this social productive sector. So they were not even paid to do that. And the assumption, again, was uh, it's good for them to volunteer and to actually learn these type of, of professions and activities, because this will help them in the future to, to find the job. Now, uh, obviously, there are huge problems with this assumption, not least the fact that these women are not even paid for, for this work. But one of the the things that I find particularly problematic in all of this is that some of the organizations or even state agencies implementing these programs uh, for for migrant women are actually run by women and some of them are run by feminists and uh, um, obviously I, I, I think it's quite contradictory to tell on the one hand these women that they should emancipate that they should get rid of their supposedly backward cultures, get rid of their veils and so forth but on the other hand these women are channeled towards those, uh, uh, you know, sectors of the labor market and, th- and towards those gendered roles, which are precisely those against which feminists thought.
0: Right, right. Uh,
1: and uh, I thought this is actually quite contradictory and, uh, well, that's no good. <laughs>
0: right. So you talk about social reproduction there also, and it, it strikes me, again, you know, trying to understand how we reproduce our thinking as well, right? Our our cultural understanding um, within communities that that create these hierarchies of uh, working classes, right? So if you bring in um, uh, you know immigrant women, non Western immigrant women to to become nannies, healthcare workers, uh, caring uh, workers for elderly, uh, you're creating a a particular class, and you're creating another class, the one that's being served right, to see the immigrant culture, the Muslim culture frequently, right, the the culture of color for the most part, right, again, as a primarily servant class, right, primarily replicating, again, the slave class, this is generally what what's happening again. And you say it's a very specific, it's been very specific, at least since 2007, a very specific channeling of a, a culture of color serving the the white culture. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Sarah Ferris, author of In the Name of Women's Rights, The Rise of FEMO Nationalism on the Disingenuousness of Right-Wing Feminist Rhetoric. Talk about it. You know, it's visually easy to see. Um, right-wing caricatures are easy to point out. Um, they have. They certainly work. Obviously, on a large population, a large, a large group of people certainly believe in these demonizations and ideas of victimhood. And we certainly do apparently turn a blind eye towards all of the domestic violence that white culture has in its own Western you know, European culture are full of uh, domestic violence and violence against women and rape, et cetera. So there's no, it's easy to say, let's, let's not talk about this. Let's talk about that over there, that other uh, uh, culture of color that is backward, as you say. So these are tropes, right? These are tropes that have been constantly used. They're clearly political, they're clearly economic, you know, and they're clearly uh, racist,
1: one of the the problems that needs to be addressed very addressed very urgently is as you said how to avoid reproducing a situation in which the racialized people also become the serving class right because one of the things that i encountered when i criticized some of these uh, women's organization you know giving these uh, Uh, nannies or maids, uh, cleaners, jobs to migrant women, one of the reactions to my criticisms was, uh, well, what's the problem? At least they are given a job. Instead of doing nothing, they get some money. You know, lots of people think that. And how do you respond to that? So I think one of the things to say, first of all, is that it is actually very problematic that, and it is racist, that these jobs we somehow think or people think they should be occupied by people of colour or immigrants or racialized uh, people because it is an expression of, uh, you know, racism and discrimination, racial discrimination that is reproduced in our societies. But the other very important thing to say is actually that one of the reasons why this happens, uh, uh, one of the reasons why these jobs uh, tend to be given to racialized people are immigrants or people in a more vulnerable position in the labor market is because these are cheap jobs. They are very badly paid. They are, they you know, people who work in these jobs work unsociable hours. They usually are, you know, in the underground economy, don't have contracts and so forth. So one of the ways in which we can certainly address this problem and perhaps avoid the racialization of this sector is, first of all, by beginning to recognize these jobs as proper jobs jobs that need a proper and fair remuneration so a fair salary they should be recognized as jobs like any other job and that should be uh, you know they should be contractually contractually regulated they uh, i mean this is one of the, the most important things to recognize that this is work because one of the main problems uh, that we face as feminists when we talk about social reproductive work is that socially, I mean, the public does not recognize it as proper work. Somehow the assumption is that is that these are really feminine activities. So women know how to clean and iron and raise babies as a vocation. They grow up learning all these things. So why should they be, you know, recognized as skilled workers if these are not skills? but somehow, you know, just in he- inherent, uh, um, you know, gifts that women women have. And the first barrier to actually, to break, the first obstacle is precisely to recognize that these are jobs, these are skills that people have to learn, and these are very, uh, you know, this, this is hard work that needs to be recognized, that needs to be professionalized, and needs to be considered as proper work.
0: It's time for one last break, and once more, Aziz Ibrahim accompanies us. This is Los Muros, or The Walls, off of the 2016 album Abar el Hamada, which translates as Across the Hamada. Hamada is the word used by the Sawahari people to describe the rocky desert landscape along the Algerian, western Saharan frontier, where tens of thousands of their people are stranded in purgatorial refugee camps. More white lies to brown people when Interchange returns on WFHB. How's should- Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm. In this final segment of White Lies to Brown People, Sarah Ferris discusses Convention 189 of the International Labor Organization regarding domestic work. We'll also look at the concept of open borders, and we'll close with a discussion of On the Jewish Question, the 1843 essay by Karl Marx in response to the othering of Jewish culture and which should serve as a clear warning to us as Western white politicians and right-wing parties demonize the Muslim male as a backward and dangerous other.
1: because this is maybe a little detail that can be interesting to, to people who are uh, listening to this, is that this is actually a battle that um, domestic workers all around the world are actually, uh, you know, doing. There is a, a global network of domestic workers all around the world that are they're a kind of trade union for domestic workers, and they are fighting for the recognition by states of the so-called 189 uh, Convention, which is a convention that's been, uh, um, can we say, signed, established by the ILO, the International Labour Organization. And basically the states that uh, sign this convention, that subscribe to this convention, they recognize uh, domestic work as proper work, and in some states, they have, uh, you know, introduced new laws according to which domestic workers have exactly the same rights uh, than all other workers, which, you know, is quite an achievement. Particularly, I'm thinking about some uh, Latin American countries in which this has been a very, you know, there have been lots of discussions about that because so many indigenous women and immigrant women in, the, in Latin America are, you know, cleaners and maids. and and domestic workers. So it's been, there there has been a huge discussion, particularly, you know, uh, in the wake of the the pink tide Mm -hmm. about recognition of domestic workers. Um, But this is also perhaps a way to answer maybe your other question or just to comment on your other point. What do we do in terms of breaking, you know, these stereotypes? There are lots of discussions here in the UK about... um, freedom of movement uh, and open borders, uh, particularly in the left. And there is uh, a tension in the, in the left, and I'm talking about uh, uh, you know, the Labour Party in particular at the moment. And the tension is that lots of uh, people on the left and even at the left of Labour, and even lots of so-called Marxists, actually are resistant to the idea of open borders. They actually are resistant to the idea of freedom of movement because they think immigrants undercut wages. Mm. They present, you know, a threat fundamentally to, to national workers because they, they are a threat to wages. Now, obviously, you know, this is an extremely problematic discussion uh, because, uh, of course, migrants have been used, uh, you know, migrant labor, migrant yeah. cheap labor in the current conditions of just I mean, on uh, freedom of movement, because the freedom of movement, movement in, any, in some ways, it is artificial. So, of course, migrants uh, have been used in order to the cut wages. That, that is partly true. Employers have done that, particularly in some sectors. But at the same time, obviously, we need to, I think we need to recognise that all of this happens uh, in a specific economic framework, which is the neoliberal framework. But we need to try to imagine uh, what does happen if we change that framework what happens if we have a different political economy a different economic um, if, if we if we have a government that applies different rules to the economy it conceives of the welfare state of uh, trade unions, uh, and the jobs and securities and wages more generally different, differently. So obviously this is a conversation that we need to have in this changed framework. And I think it is extremely important for, for the left and for the labour movement to recognise that uh, uh, immigrants are obviously, they are not a threat. It is extremely important to recognise and uh, to um, the the, the importance of open borders uh, for a truly internationalist left politics and to recognize in my view the danger of conceiving of politics only within, for the left, uh, within the framework of the nation state uh, and of the somehow defense of these national borders. Uh, I am extremely um, allergic, just to, to say the least, to these nationalist discourses on the left I find extremely problematic uh, the discourses about uh, you know immigrants right. uh, threatening wages and so forth uh, because we need to think how a different we need to think how a different um, economic system will also change the picture about uh, you know the role of immigrants in our societies and right. so forth.
0: One thing uh, that, that struck me as you were talking, I, and we, I mentioned Lenin earlier, and it seems to me you're, you're bringing him back in again in some sense, right? So there's the one thing Lenin said that maybe other people recognize is, um, you know, that, that Stalin gave us, quote unquote, socialism in one country, uh, which was, of course, murder and tyranny in one country. But, uh, you know, Lenin and, and uh, Trotsky's point was that socialism had to be in every country or it wouldn't work at all right? So you couldn't fight the forces of capitalism with, with socialism in one country. It would always be squashed, you know, by, by capitalist forces. And you're saying basically the same thing with open borders. You know, there's, there's a sense that it has to be an agreement in all countries. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Sarah Ferris, author of In the Name of Women's Rights, The Rise of FEMO Nationalism. As Sarah Ferris comes out of a Marxist feminist tradition, it seems only right that we close with insights from Karl Marx on demonizing the other. Quickly again, I'm sorry. If there's a chance that we could talk about the Jewish question as a kind of a framework uh, for othering, uh, the Marxist um, you know response to Bruno Bauer, um, it is a framework that we continue to repeat you know, how we, how we characterise and class particular people should. Do you want to sketch the, that particular idea?
1: Yes. Uh, well, in, in this specific article and also talk uh, that you are referring to, basically what I do is to, I look at the discussion on the Jewish question between Bauer and Marx in uh, the 1840s. And what struck me when I was reading this uh, exchange between Bauer and Marx, and also when I was reading about the context of that exchange, is that you know these, those were years in which uh, Jew, Jews in in Germany and in, it was then Prussia were accused, were considered as inferior, not so much in, you know as biologically inferior. There was not really a concept of race yet. That comes later. But they were considered inferior in terms of culture. So the whole idea was that, you know, they do, don't, do not want to assimilate to the Prussian state and to the Christian culture. They were called at that time a nation within the nation. The idea was Jews do not recognize our laws; they only recognize their own law, their own laws, and therefore they are a threat for you know our Christian state and culture because they and for our laws because they don't recognize uh, this as, as legitimate. Now, what struck me was precisely that there there are analogies between the ways in which the Jews were portrayed in the 1840s in Prussia and the ways in which Muslims are portrayed, uh, you know, now in several uh, Western European countries. And here I, the example I make is specifically that of France. So France is an interesting case because, um, France but also other countries, because the Muslims are usually portrayed as, uh, you know, those who have their own law, they don't recognize uh, the state and they don't really want to assimilate. They want to keep their own culture. So this analogy for me was interesting to, to, to look at. And one of the things that I say is that this is just like Bruno Bowers was fundamentally anti, anti-Semite because what he thought really was Jews, uh, you know, they should assimilate, but the only way to assimilate is to get rid of the religion to stop being Jews, um, and this is more or less what the French state implicitly is telling Muslims. The only way you can assimilate is by getting rid of your religion and by, uh, you know, becoming French citizens in the way that we, in which we conceive of the legitimacy of this, of this term. And I think it is important to recognize these historical analogies. Precisely in order to avoid the tragedies uh, that came afterwards, um, and precisely in order to, to look at, you know, the, the many ways in which Muslims might be playing the role of today's Jews, yeah.
2: um,
1: in the sense that they are now, you know, the main victimized others.
0: Right, right. Well, it, it struck me as necessary to to bring it out just again, because, you know, this is one of the things that uh, like someone like an Ann Coulter would say over and over again, you know, the Muslims should be Christianized or get rid of them. Uh, you know, she said this many times and then just struck me as uh, this is the rhetoric that that it just gets amped up uh, every time you turn on the right wing radio so or a tv uh, so it was important i think to to draw those parallels and i appreciate you doing it That's our show. Aziza Brahim takes us out with Regresso, or Return, off of Mi Canto, from 2009. Thanks to Sarah Ferris, who joined us from London via Skype, for showing us the latest and greatest ways of white Western European racism and chain-gang labor, this time by way of FEMO nationalism. Her new book is In the Name of Women's Rights, and it's published by Duke University Press. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can find this program along with other interchange programs available for podcast at our website, wfhp.org news interchange. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Joe Crawford is executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB.